Good morning. It's good to be here. I, I miss Eastgate. So Marianne and I have been in uh, Russell now for two years, and we definitely know that we're where the Lord has put us. We're blessed and content, but sometimes you miss places that you have had fellowship, and I certainly miss you people. It's good to be here this morning. Um, so I'm sure the name George Floyd is one that all of you have heard in the last few weeks. And uh, I believe Pastor Bill actually preached on the theme of justice a couple of weeks ago. I just noticed that when I was checking um, sermon titles. But a couple of weeks ago when I realized that I was to preach, I, I hadn't actually commented much on sort of publicly on racial issues since the killing of George Floyd, but I, I knew that the Lord wanted me to preach on the theme of justice. So I want to start with a bit of a, just a bit of my background, because we all come at these things from our own background, and then I, I want to focus on what the Word says. Um, it's God's Word, always, but we come at it from our experience. So let me just say a little bit about myself. So my parents uh, emigrated to this country from Holland. Many of you know that, but they were in Holland during the Second World War. They were young adults at that time, and my father was involved in the Dutch resistance, actually, helping get Jewish people out of Holland. So I don't remember my parents talking a lot about race when I was growing up, but I just know that from a very early age, uh, their home was a home that was open to anybody and I just knew that. I saw it. They respected people of all races, all backgrounds. It didn't make a difference to them. And so that was just how I grew up. That was what I understood to be right. Um, my mother was involved in various, through their church, which was at a, on the borders of a low-income neighborhood. She was involved in uh, various programs to work with mothers and young children who needed various kinds of supports. So from a very early age, I understood that we were to help those in need and stand with those in need, and that injustice was abhorrent. I somehow grew up with this understanding. They didn't talk about it a lot, but I knew that injustice was abhorrent to, to God. Um, last fall, I attended the Ottawa Civic Prayer Breakfast, uh, which is an annual event, and one of the speakers was Paul Racine, who is a, a man who's worked a great deal with, well, he was the featured speaker. He's worked a great deal with Cree youth in, uh, in Quebec, but he also invited a Cree couple to speak, Gordon and Mary Jane. He's worked closely with them for a number of years now. And they shared their story of having been, uh, how the uh, residential school system had affected them. I already knew about it, but when you hear about it from an individual, from a live person, it has an impact on you in a way that it doesn't if you just read about it in the news. And part of what I saw, there were a lot of horrors uh, as a result of the residential school system, but part of what I saw that was really encouraging was partnership between white and indigenous people. Then there was the George Floyd killing, and I was horrified at what I heard and saw. And so I began examining myself. And I, I knew that 
I think I can say this honestly, I, I knew that I am not personally racist, but I began examining myself and asking myself, how could this happen? And I, the Lord drove me back to the Word, of course, He does that. And I, I was listening to people like Dalton and others, other friends that I have who are black, uh, who were sharing publicly about their experience of racism and about their reflections. And I guess one thing I did realize through all this reflection was that although I have never tried to use my position as a white person to my advantage, in North America I'm privileged just by being white. And it was not visible to me for a long time. It wasn't something that I was conscious of. It's just there. It's just a fact. Things are easier for me because I'm white. They just are. And so I had to reckon with that. Because part of, this, part of the narrative you hear from people that have experienced direct personal racism is that their lives were more difficult simply because they were black or indigenous or Inuit or name your racial group. So I had to reckon with that. So as I preach, I just want to acknowledge my background. I'm actually preaching based on my position. I'm preaching based on the Word of God, but I'm going to be asking the question, how do we respond to injustice? Well, you respond differently if you're the member of a privileged group. If you're a Christian, but you're part of a privileged group, your response to injustice is different in some ways than if you're the person who's suffering injustice. So I believe it'll speak to all of you. I'm asking the Lord for that. But that's my... That's my posture coming into this. I'm asking these questions based on somebody who realizes he's been part of a privileged group his whole life. Um, I'm thankful to God for the blessings that I have, but I am motivated to use them to serve others. So let's get into the Word. So to begin with, uh, as I began thinking about what the Word of God says about justice... The first scripture that popped out at me was from Psalm 97, and it literally, I I listened to the Psalms quite often, and I was listening to Psalms, and I heard Psalm 97, and I thought, I have to use that. So the first truth I want to highlight is that justice is at the heart of God's nature and his kingdom. It's not like something you could add on if you feel like it. It's, It's at the center. It's not negotiable. Justice is at the heart of God's nature. So Psalm 97 says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. So we get a sense of the majesty of God. But then it says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The foundation of his throne is pretty important, wouldn't you say? If God has a throne and righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, then I would say that righteousness and justice are pretty important to him. And then, and I want to say that as I go to the next scripture, so I'm going to highlight a few things quite quickly, and then at the end I want to focus more on our response. I just want to highlight some key truths first. So the second scripture I wanted to read related to God's nature is from Acts 10. And the Apostle Peter is speaking, and this is just after he has had a revelation from God that he's supposed to go to Gentiles with the gospel. Because up until then, you know, as a, as a Jew who has always kept the uh, laws of purity... He didn't associate with Gentiles, but the Lord gave him a vision and showed him that he needed to go to the house of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. Many of you might know the story, but that's the background. And so 
he begins to speak to this gathered group. Cornelius is a, is a centurion, and he has his whole household is gathered to hear what Peter has to say. And his household would include servants. They're probably all Gentiles, or mostly Gentiles. And this is what Peter says. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So this is a core truth. God does not show favoritism. And even in the Old Covenant, the understanding was that the Jewish people, the people of Israel, were to be a light to the nations. They had a special identity, but their, the role that God had assigned to them was to be a light to all the nations. God made all the nations. So God, and with Jesus' salvation, is open to every nation. So God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So God does not have favorite nations or races. Uh, I want to just... As a side note, I want to say the concept of race is not even in the Bible. The concept of race comes from Darwinism. I'm not going to spend long on that, but it's actually an evolutionary concept. In the Bible, there's only one race. There's one blood. Acts 17 says we were made from one blood, from one man. And there are nations. The Bible does talk about nations. And God very clearly says that he doesn't have a favorite nation, that he he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So that's the first truth I want to highlight. The second truth, and this is something I had to sort of grapple with, is that systemic injustice is real. And I've heard, I have friends who have said, well, we, do, we have had racism in Canada, but it's not systemic. There are incidents of racism, but it's not systemic. But if you listen to the experience of indigenous people or the experience of black people, you can't say that because their experience is that it is systemic, that it's, it's, it's a consistent part of their life experience. Now, not every black person would tell you that. I've had, I have black friends who have said, I've never experienced racism. But I've had other black friends who have said, well, I experienced it all the time. And, and I know they're not liars. I know they're truthful people. These aren't even people that have spoken up about this all the time, but in the wake of the George Floyd killing, they felt called upon to speak and have said, this is actually a common part of our experience. So I had to reckon with that. And my, my daughter works for a, a, a nonprofit. She's a social worker, and she works for a nonprofit um, organization that works with Inuit families and children. And working with them, she is confronted all the time with systemic racism. So it's real. And there's a scripture that I, again, listening to the Psalms, this popped out at me, Psalm 58. This is God speaking to rulers. And it's interesting, if you look at the scripture, Psalm 58, the next slide, it's interesting that different translations translate it differently. Some, some translate it as if he's speaking to angelic beings, and some translate it as if he's speaking to human rulers. And I'm going to come to the angelic beings part in a little bit. But here's what he says. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No, in your heart you devise injustice and your hands mete out violence on the earth. So God is here, he's chastising people, those in authority, for not doing justice. This is a key principle in the word which we're going to come to, is that if you have authority, you are required to defend the rights of the weak. That, that's an obligation 
on people with authority to defend the rights of the weak. That's a core biblical principle. Um, so that's, I'm just going to leave that there. There is systemic injustice. I'm not going to spend long on it. But the third thing that I came to, and this is actually really, really important, and it's maybe not that obvious at first glance, but I think it's really important. Systemic injustice is a spiritual problem. It is a spiritual problem. So we're going to go right back to Genesis, and you might wonder why I would do that, but let's, hopefully we'll see it in a minute. Genesis 3, the serpent... So this is when the serpent is tempting Eve regarding the fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat or that Adam and she weren't supposed to eat. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the core of the temptation here was you can be independent of God. You'll be as smart as God. You'll know as much as God. You won't need God. Now, why would the serpent want to do that? Because he wanted to be in charge. And he knew that once he tempted, because God had assigned rulership of the earth to mankind. And once God tempted, once the serpent tempted our first parents um, away from dependence on God, he could influence their thoughts and he could have his way with them. And that's exactly what proceeded to happen. So, 1 John 5.19, we know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, John's not saying that every feature of the natural world, he's talking about the world system. He's, he's talking about the system, really he's talking about the human race. He's saying that the world system is under the control of the evil one. That's a strong statement. But, I would argue that it's true, and a lot of the time, we just don't recognize it. So in Ephesians 6, next scripture, Paul is talking about spiritual warfare. And he's talking about personal warfare, but really it applies to broader spheres as well. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So when you're dealing with the causes of injustice, you have to recognize the problem is not just a specific ruler. If you think that by replacing one ruler with another, you will get rid of injustice, just look at human history. You're fooling yourself. It's not that simple. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And their main assignment is to deceive us, they have other assignments as well, but their main assignment is to deceive us. That's what they do. And so there's a, an example of this. This isn't spoken about a lot in the Bible in direct descriptive terms, but there is one place in the book of Daniel where it's made very clear. So there's an angel, an archangel, who's sent to Daniel with a message that Daniel is to proclaim. And this is what the archangel says. He says, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. So he's talking about a demonic entity, an angel, an evil angel, a fallen angel. And he's saying that he resisted me 21 days. And he even calls him the king of Persia. So what does that tell you? It tells you that behind nations, 
there are angelic powers. That behind every human ruler, there are demonic entities constantly trying to deceive them and control what they do because Satan wants to rule the earth. So why is there injustice? It's not just because people are wicked and fallen. That is true. But it's also because human rulers are much of the time being manipulated by demonic beings and don't even realize it. And many of them actually welcome it. They might not welcome it consciously, but by their attitudes, they completely allow it. There are godly leaders, of course, who try to seek God. And when they do, things improve. But there's this constant battle going on. So that's just background. I don't even want to say more about it, but it's important to recognize it. All right. Back to us and our role. Why do people cry out for justice? Well, there's two main reasons that I want to highlight. The first reason is simply that we're made in God's image, and this applies to all people. The second reason I'm going to give in a minute is why godly people cry out for justice. But let's start with why everybody, everybody wants things to be fair for them. One of the things that your children start to say early on is, it's not fair. (laughs) What's not fair? Whatever I don't like isn't fair. That's, That's the fallen perspective on fairness. It's not fair if I don't like it. But... Everybody wants justice for themselves, especially. And some people, I was, as I said, when I was a child, I, my heart was made sensitive to justice for others, I believe, by the grace of God. I'm not saying that boastfully. That was God's work. But, so there are many people who desire justice for others as well. But it's part of our fallen nature to desire justice, at least for ourselves. But why do we want justice? Because God has made us in his image, and he is just. So even though we're fallen... There's something in us that says the world should be right. I learned recently, I learned an evangelistic tool uh, through some training at Harmony Community Church, our new church, uh, and it's called the three circles. And you basically draw three, the first circle you draw, you can start with God or you can start with, with human condition, but the one that I prefer to start with is the human condition. The first circle you draw is a picture of human life that's broken. And you begin by saying, You know, human life is broken, and everybody will agree with that. I don't think you'll find anybody who would argue with you if you say human life is broken. People realize there's something wrong with the human condition. So people cry out for justice because they know that things are supposed to work right, and they're not working right. And there's something in us that wants to fix that because God made people to govern the earth. So when people come into a position of leadership... They think they can fix things. And they try. And they might make some things better and some things worse. But people cry out for justice because they're made to desire justice because we're made in God's image and God is just. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is that if you're a godly person, you, you cry out for justice because you know that only God holds the answer. So Jesus told a parable. Um, and a parable of the widow and the unjust judge. And uh, I'm not going to read the whole parable, but she's basically, this widow is basically going to an unjust judge asking for justice. And then the conclusion is this. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? 
I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So we need to go to the next slide here. So, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So this is really interesting because Jesus is saying that crying out for justice is an expression of faith. And that if you truly have faith in his coming kingdom, you will cry out for justice. So part of what that means is if you're a believer, you can't not care about justice. Let me say that again. If you belong to Jesus, you can't say, well, justice is somebody else's concern. Like justice is not a spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are given differently to different people. But there are some things that are for all believers, One of them is love. We'd all agree with that. We're all called to love God and love our neighbor. Those are commandments. Well, justice is like that. It's not negotiable. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you cannot not care about justice. That's not an option. So Jesus says that he expects his people, his people, to demonstrate their faith in him by crying out to God for justice and not stopping until he returns to bring justice to the earth. Which brings us to the next truth that I want to highlight, the nature of our hope. The nature of our hope is not in human rulers. Sometimes, you know, we put a lot of faith in human rulers. And I vote in elections, and I sometimes support certain candidates, and I you know, when I can find a godly candidate that I think has a, an opportunity to, to will... I know they're not going to be perfect, but I hope they'll bring a change. But that's not where my hope is. Psalm 147 makes this very clear. Do not... Say that again. Do not... Do not put your trust in princes or prime ministers or presidents in human beings who cannot save when their spirit departs they return to the ground on that very day their plans come to nothing blessed are those whose help is the god of jacob whose hope is in the lord their god and if you read the rest of the psalm he's very clearly talking about justice he's saying that the god of israel is the only one who will bring justice to the earth Now, this next scripture is actually really interesting. It's an instruction given by the mother of a king to her son. It's in Proverbs, last chapter of Proverbs. And this king is named, it's King Lemuel, and he clearly wasn't an Israelite. So this is a pagan mother, but she's speaking to her son, the king, and telling him what his job is. And she says to him, so don't get drunk. That's for other people. You're a king. You can't do that. Open your mouth. And then she says, open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So that's the biblical assignment for kings. That's maybe not all they're supposed to do, but that's a very important part of it, to defend the rights of those who can't defend themselves. That's the biblical assignment for kings. And then we have a couple of scriptures that highlight what the Messiah's kingdom will be like. So Psalm 72. Psalm 72 is the psalm from which 
the motto of the Dominion of Canada was taken. You know the verse that says, he shall have dominion from sea to sea? Well, I have a couple of verses from that psalm. And this is clearly a psalm about the Messiah. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, speaking of the needy or the poor here, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. When I read that, I thought of George Floyd. And precious shall be their blood in his sight. You know, while his life was ebbing away, he wasn't a perfect man, but he was being mistreated. And while his life was ebbing away, the man who was killing him was being called to account by the God of creation. Now, we're not better than Derek Chauvin. I'm not going to get into that whole incident. We are all accountable. But what I wanted to highlight here is the Messiah, in his kingdom, will establish justice. And then here's another verse about the Messiah. Isaiah 11 is a powerful, powerful passage about the nature of the Messiah and the kingdom that he will bring on the earth. And that's what the Bible says that it will come on the earth. And this is part of his character. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Do you delight in the fear of the Lord? We don't even talk about the fear of the Lord very much. But it says that the Messiah will delight in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, he won't believe every report. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So, the Messiah's kingdom will be a kingdom of justice. And uh, we're going to come back to this, but the Bible says that the earth will be restored. It doesn't just say we're going to heaven. Yes, it's true. When I die, if Jesus hasn't returned yet, I'll be with him in heaven. I believe that. I look forward to that. But that isn't my destiny. My destiny is to live in a restored heaven and earth where justice reigns. That's what the Bible says. And in the Messianic kingdom, there will be justice. So with all of that, how do we respond to injustice? How do we as people of God respond to injustice? Well, the first thing is, and this is, where I'm, this, is, this is what I was thinking of when I said earlier that I'm speaking this from a position of privilege. If I, was, if I was somebody who, I wouldn't say the same thing to you if you had just been beaten down as I would say to you if you were somebody who has the ability to change that. It's, a different, it's the same truth, but it applies differently to different people if you understand what I mean. But... I know, and I believe this applies to everybody, but it applies, it's more, it's more pungent if you're an authority than if you're under the boot. Crucify the flesh and humble yourself. Like if you're, if you're a slave owner and you're whipping your slave and you say to him, humble yourself, you're speaking the wrong message because God says to you, humble yourself. Yes, we should all humble ourselves, but you don't say that to somebody that you're grinding down. 
right? That's the wrong message. You don't understand the message if you say that to the person that you're grinding down. Do you get it? I think you do. I just wanted to make that clear. Um, So Paul says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. This is for believers. This is for disciples. Do nothing out of self-ambition or vain conceit, because the world can't do this. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now, you, if you apply that to racism or any other situation of injustice, it answers the problem right there. If we, in humility, consider others better than ourselves, we're not going to be able to practice racism. It's going to convict us, and we're going to repent right away. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So if I am a person with privilege, then I need to humble myself. And even if I'm not a person with privilege, we all need to humble ourselves before the Lord. But in the context of human relationships, if I'm the person with privilege, I need to humble myself. That's the first thing. We position ourselves in a position of humility. James says in his letter, he says, the rich person should take pride in his low position because his riches are going to vanish anyway. And the person with nothing should take pride in his high position because God has declared him of high value. I'm adding a bit of interpretation to what he says, but that's basically what he's saying. He's saying, if you're rich, remember, it's all going to disappear anyway. But if you're poor, remember that God has highly exalted you. So he turns the whole thing on its head. And that's what the gospel does. If we have privilege, it's for the sake of serving. Second thing in terms of humbling ourselves is if you need to repent, do it. One of the concerns I have about the whole discussion um, around racism currently is that it can become like a no-win situation where you're guilty just for being white. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel does not say that. Anybody can repent if they're guilty of something, and you're not guilty just by association. There are sins of the fathers, yes, and if you're... If you, know, if you need to repent, then do it. And you can repent on behalf of the sins of your race. But when you're done doing that, then just get on with living your life as a, as a forgiven believer. So this is what Ezekiel had to say about the sins of the fathers. He said, this is really interesting. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? This is in the, in the context of a longer discussion. He was addressing this issue that... Basically, we can't repent because our fathers sinned. He's saying, that's ridiculous. Of course you can repent. You can be set free from your sins, even if your fathers sinned. So he's basically saying, it's up to us as disciples of Jesus. If we need to repent, then do it. And I'm going to add to that, don't take too long over it. If there's something God shows you that you need to repent of, then just deal with it and move on. It's a stumbling block if you linger over it. 
If you deal with it quickly, it's not a stumbling block. So that's the first thing. Crucify the flesh and humble yourself. The second thing is develop a renewed mind. So we need to learn to think the way God thinks. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture here, but I think this is really an important topic. We need to respond to it biblically. So second thing is to think the way God thinks about everything, but that certainly includes justice. So developing a renewed mind, and we do that simply by absorbing the word of God. I know of no other way to renew your mind. The Bible says, Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing. So as you speak the word of God to yourself, your mind gets renewed. You're renewing your own mind with God's truth, and it changes the way you think. I find that happens to me constantly. But you have to expose yourself to it for that to happen. If you leave your Bible on the shelf, it doesn't do any good for you. So develop a renewed mind. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this mind, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I want to have the mind of Christ. In other words, I want to understand how God thinks about any situation. And I find that asking the Holy Spirit for insight is extremely useful. But it only works if you have a foundation. Uh, he can speak to you anyway, but he has a lot more to work with if you know the Word of God. If you know the Word of God, he'll show you things. He does that for me all the time. I ask him for guidance, he shows me something from the Bible, and I think, oh yeah, that's right, that's what I needed to hear. Thank you, Lord. So he can renew our minds about any situation. Third thing is in responding to injustice, and this would apply to anybody, but again, if you're a person of privilege or influence, it applies a lot more. Um, He has told you, O man, what is good. This is from Micah 6. This was written to a people who needed to repent, a nation that needed to repent, and Micah was basically saying it's not that complicated. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So this has actually many implications, but one of them is be ruthless with yourself in practicing justice in your personal dealings. It forms your character. My father wasn't a particularly devout man, but he was a man who understood justice very well. And he was fair-minded, I would say almost to a fault. But he was, it was really important to him to be fair to his children and to everybody else he dealt with. So that was kind of instilled in my character. And I'm very thankful for that. That was one of the impetuses that led me to the cross. So practice fair dealing That might not seem like it's going to solve big-picture problems, but I don't believe we solve big-picture problems by ourselves. God will do that, but he's looking for a people who care about justice, and so I have to look after my own heart and practice justice in all my dealings. I see George and Nahia back there. I know George is a business person, and I'm sure this is important to him in his business. Practice fair dealing. You have to. If you're a believer, you have to. God won't bless you if you don't. If you want God's blessing, 
And that's not the best reason. The best reason is because it's right. right? It's just right. If you, if you do it just because you want God's blessing, it's not the best reason you could have. But it is a reason. God blesses those who do justice because he loves justice. And he wants us to love what he loves. All right. Fourth thing. I'm getting to a conclusion here, so hang on. <laughs> the fourth principle in responding to injustice is do what you can to right wrongs. So you can't fix everything. When I was a young man, first learning to respond to God, I wasn't even born again yet, but I was, my conscience was very sensitive I, about justice. I was paralyzed for a period of time because there were so many things that I couldn't fix. And one of the ways God dealt with me in mercy was to say, well, I'm not asking you to fix them all. What I put in front of you is what I want you to deal with. So do what you can to right wrongs. So this verse from Proverbs speaks to that. Proverbs 3, verse 37. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. So it may not be in your power. And if it's not, you know, when I was leading the refugee team here, uh, there were people that emailed me from all over the world asking to be sponsored. And I had to say, we can't, we're over capacity. We'd love to, but we can't. But I'll pray for you. But if you do that, if you say that and you haven't done anything, then you're not being honest with yourself. If you've done what you can do, God is pleased with that. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. And I would add this. When you take the steps you can take, you find that God adds grace for more steps. Every step that you take in obedience prepares you for the next one and you find that you're doing more than you thought you'd be able to. That's just the way it is with God. And then there's this famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Next slide, please. I won't tell the whole story. I think most of you know it. But just in case you don't, it's a story about three people who passed by somebody who was beat up on the road and only one person stopped to help. That's basically what the story. And Jesus told this story in responding to an expert in the Jewish law who wanted to justify himself and had said, well, who is my neighbor anyway? I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? So Jesus told this well-known story. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I know we all know that, but that's powerful. That's simple, but it's powerful. Showing mercy when we have the opportunity to do it. And another little note in this story is that the hero of the story is from a despised group, right? He's from a Samaritan. So that would be like telling... Um, I don't know, a a racist white person, a story in which the hero is a black person and say, you go and do likewise. Um, So do what you can to right wrongs. That's what the Samaritan was doing in that parable. The person who had been beaten up wasn't his responsibility. He hadn't caused the problem. He was innocent, but he saw a wrong and he had the means to do something about it, and he did. Simple. You don't always have the means. There could be various reasons why you're not free 
to do anything about a situation, and that could be legitimate. But when you do have the liberty and you have the ability and you have the opportunity, then do it. And again, that shapes your character. And two more things about responding to injustice. Guard your heart. And then I have one more, but guard your heart. It's easy to become bitter if you care about justice. And it's easy, certainly if you're part of an oppressed group, it's easy to become bitter, but it's also easy if you care about justice and you're trying to fix things and you get discouraged. It's actually really easy to become bitter if you take your eyes off the Lord uh, because you're taking the whole weight onto yourself. And uh, more advice from Proverbs Proverbs, it says 3.23, but it's actually 4.23. Um, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Vigilance, that's a good word. That means pay attention to your heart. And then different translation, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. So guarding the condition of your heart is so important. I, I can't afford to become bitter with anybody or any situation. And I've experienced injustice. It wasn't racial injustice, but I mean, I think all of us could say we've experienced injustice at some point in our life. I've, I've had experiences where I was quite unjustly treated by the church, actually. I won't tell the whole story, but so I had reason to be bitter, but I didn't want to become bitter. And I had to make a choice not to be. I had to make a choice to forgive. And we all have to make that choice because if your heart becomes polluted, you can't do any good. Even when you're trying to do good, you end up doing harm. Forgiveness has great power. Next slide. This is not... Oops. Oh, yeah, okay. That's good. Thank you. Um, For if... Jesus taught this. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now, this is sobering. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And this doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how you've been treated. This applies to everybody. If you harbor unforgiveness and bitterness, you are blocking the way to receiving God's forgiveness for your own sins. It's not negotiable. Marion and I have done a lot of prayer ministry over the years with wounded people, and this is a big stumbling block for people that have been abused. They think that because they've been abused, they have a right to be bitter. And sometimes we really have to work with them to see that's actually a trap. And when you choose to forgive, it releases God's grace into your life. And I've seen that happen many times. People have been set free, but it's a battle for them because of the deceiver. It goes back to the deceiver. Injustice is the work of the deceiver who wants us to think we have reason to be bitter. Because if he gets us to believe that, then he has us in prison. So forgiveness has power to set free. Next slide, please. This is not scripture, but it's a scriptural principle. Hurt people hurt people. Healed people heal people. So as your heart becomes healed by the grace of God, you can heal other people. As long as you're still carrying hurt, you will only hurt other people, even when you're trying to do good. 
Many of you might remember the movie Invictus, which featured Nelson Mandela and the victory of the Springboks rugby team. I'm not a rugby fan, but it was a great movie. The victory of the, of the Springboks rugby team over New Zealand in 1995. But that was a unifying event for the new nation of South Africa. And Nelson Mandela was committed to blacks and whites working together. I don't know if you know this, but he was raised by a Christian mother. His mother was a very devout Methodist. And he, although he didn't say a lot about it, uh, Jesus was important to him. And he was able to practice forgiveness. He wasn't a perfect man. Nobody is. But he was able to practice forgiveness after 27 years in a brutal prison camp. And one of... One of the things that was featured in that film, for those who don't know it, is a, a line from a poem in which he said, he quoted this poem, I am the captain of my soul. And what he was basically saying is, I can decide whether to forgive or not, and I'm choosing to forgive. And that's crucial. If you're going to be involved in the fight against injustice, it's crucial to carry that posture. And the last thing, and this, with this I want to close, If you're going to combat injustice, put your hope in God's promise. It's the only way to have rest and also be productive. Put your hope in God's promise. And the promise I want to highlight as we conclude is from Revelation 21. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I'm making everything new. There's going to come a time when tears end and justice prevails on the earth. And that's our hope. And that's the hope that only Jesus can give because he suffered injustice for us and did not retaliate. He has the right to deal with injustice and the wisdom to deal with it. So he is our hope, and he's the one that gives us the grace in a dark age to follow the light. So I want to encourage you, no matter who you are, no matter what your experience has been, whether you've been the victim of injustice or you're somebody who has power to help others, or both. You could be both. You could have been the victim of injustice and also have influence to help correct injustice. Probably both are true in your life. I want to encourage you to believe in God's promise Our our hope is not in a different political leader. I I have preferences in politics like everybody else, but our hope is not in a different political leader. Our hope is in Jesus. And no matter who the leader is, no matter what political system we live under, as believers, we can practice justice. And we can believe in God's promise. And we can live for the day when all things are made new. God bless you. Please pray with me. God of justice, we thank you that you have made us in such a way that we're not content, that we can't be content to see injustice prevail. And we, we choose to align our hearts with you today. We do not want to allow the enemy one inch of foothold in our thinking or our behavior. So we ask you to instruct us and teach us your ways and show us how to walk in humility in mercy, in love. And Lord, I thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you that around this communion table, we are truly all one. So I ask you to show us 
um, how we can embody that truth in the way that we live. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.